Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's called graphology. It's what people use. It's the, it's the process by which people look at handwriting and try to determine the character of the person that wrote it. They try to extrapolate from the way a person writes an E or a D or an R who they are, what kind of person that they are. And you might be wondering when you hear about graphology if this science, if this methodology can be trusted and you're not alone, it's still debated whether or not graphology really means anything. Does it really mean anything? The way you write certain letters, it's under debate. But it has been used to solve a number of criminal cases. A note left at the crime scene matches someone else's handwriting and boom, they got the killer. Or somebody, a new station gets a letter from a serial killer and they analyze what kind of person this is based on his handwriting and they're able to go and, and develop a profile for the suspect and go, go get them. Now that's kind of cool, that, that will be featured in your CSI shows or whatever, but if you're anything like me, knowing that people are using handwriting to extrapolate these, these aspects of your person, the, trying, using your handwriting to figure out what kind of person you are, if you're like me, that's very unsettling. Because I have the worst handwriting out of anyone I know. So I would be scared if someone would look at my handwriting and try to extrapolate what kind of person I am. I would be scared of what that could reveal. And isn't that just a, a general thing that would cause us some anxiety, that people can figure out our inner turmoil, our inner character, based on something as inconsequential as handwriting? That someone could be able to see through everything and see exactly what kind of person we are. That would be, that would be kind of scary. Especially right now. There is no time of year where you are under more pressure to be someone you're not than the Christmas season. What other time of year are you under more pressure to act joyful, even if you feel anything but joyful, than during the Christmas season? What time of year do you have more to do than, the, than when the year is wrapping up, and yet you're supposed to act like you have it all together? You're supposed to act like you're on top of everything, even if you know you're not. You guys who are on Christmas break already, you're supposed to be relaxing. You are supposed to be having fun. You're supposed to be taking a step back from your responsibilities. But what if you're stressed out while you're on Christmas break? What if you don't feel great? What if you are sad? What if something's happening that's making you feel bad feelings? Well, you're not supposed to feel bad feelings because you're on a vacation. And so our, our cultural script is that this is the time of year where you're supposed to put a smile on. This is the time of year where you're supposed to act joyful. And even if you feel anything but joyful, you know the script. You know the part you are supposed to play. You know what you're supposed to act like. And so we're going to play the part even if we are 100% acting. But why else? 
do we try to portray an image that might not reflect what's actually going on inside? It's the cultural script that we're given, that what we're supposed to be like, but it's also because of what we know people will do when we show weakness. If you show that this Christmas season you do not have it all together, that you are in pain, that you don't feel joyful, if you do feel weak, you know there are people who will take advantage of you for that. Showing weakness in a world full of sinners is like throwing chum into shark-infested waters. People can sniff out your weakness like blood, and they will come running. You know how you see this is true? Whenever someone out in public is at their worst, they're making a big mistake, they're committing big errors, the phones come out, and everyone starts taking a video, and everyone starts sending that video to certain social media profiles. Why? Because if we can all cast the spotlight on this person for the odd things that they're doing, for the sins that they're committing, that means the spotlight for even just a moment is not on me. That's why we can be so violently hostile toward one another, so judgmental of each other's weakness, so critical of each other's weakness, because we're all fighting the same battle. We're all trying to hide our weakness and portray an image of strength. We're all trying to make other people feel like we have it together. And so if someone else obviously doesn't, cast the attention on them, and maybe we can escape notice. But in our Isaiah lesson for this morning, we see that we can't escape everyone's notice. You cannot, this Christmas season, escape Jesus' notice. There is no act you can play. There is no image you can portray. There is nothing you can send out into the world that can fool Jesus. He knows exactly what's going on in that heart of yours or mine. You can't control, construct the narrative in any way that will actually throw Jesus off your scent. And you know how we saw this? How did Jesus describe you in the Isaiah lesson? This is the pre-incarnate Christ talking. This is Jesus up in heaven looking forward to when he would be born, when he would come and do ministry on the earth. How did he describe his purpose? How did he describe you? He said that you are poor, not just financial poverty, not just economic poverty, but spiritually poor. Jesus understands what you should understand about yourself, that you are stuck in a cycle of generational poverty, but it's a poverty of righteousness. You see that in your weakness, you see that in your guilt, you see that in the times that you fall to temptation. We are spiritually poor. We cannot manufacture our own spiritual wealth, and it keeps coming back to haunt us. Jesus describes you and me as brokenhearted. We have to clarify that this is not just a romantic thing. When the Bible says brokenhearted, it's not just talking about you got broken up with or you got cheated on. When the Bible says you are, broke, you are brokenhearted, it's talking about you are crushed in spirit. Your heart is having trouble going on because of what's happened to you. 
Jesus says that he knows that we are suffering. He knows that we are weak in the face of the way other people treat us, that we are weak in the, in the face of all, of all of our responsibilities. We are brokenhearted. We are in the vice grip of a sinful world, suffering. Jesus says that we are imprisoned, that we are captive, that we are enslaved to sin on our own, that we are, we are weak in front of our big enemy, death. Jesus says that we are mourning, that we are grieving. And some of us here are literally mourning, literally grieving. As someone you love, someone you know has passed away recently, guaranteeing that this Christmas will not be like previous Christmases. And that's hard. But all of us are grieving in some way. All of us are grieving ourselves. The death of our own innocence, as we have know that we have sinned against God. The death of our own self-image, as we observe the bad things that we keep doing that we know we shouldn't do. It's like we lose a piece of ourselves. We are grieving. And Jesus knows it all. And we are sitting there exposed before Jesus. Jesus can see all of this. He doesn't have to look at your handwriting. He doesn't have to break into your room and read your diary. Jesus can see straight into your heart and he knows every single problem with you. Now, are there, there are some culturally appropriate ways to show what's going on on the inside, right? You can't go around being totally 100% vulnerable to everyone. Someone will take advantage of you. But we have some ways in our culture that we express what's going on on the inside. For instance, you wear black to a funeral. Why? Because symbolically, the cult wearing the color black shows that you are mourning. A bride on her wedding day will wear a white dress sometimes, usually. And why? To show her joy, to show that this is her day, that she's getting married. You will wear a blazer to your job interview. Why? To show that inside you are taking this job interview seriously. We do have ways that we show outside what's going on inside. In the Old Testament, if you were in inward turmoil, if you were sad, sorrowful, repentant, or grieving, what did you do? You put ashes in your hair on your head. You deliberately clothed yourself in uncomfortable clothing, burlap or sackcloth, to show the world what you are going through. And so Jesus looks at you and he can see the ashes on your head as clear as day. He can see the burlap on your body, not literally, not physically, but he knows that you are grieving, that you are brokenhearted, that you are in pain. He can see past the act that you put out into the world and he knows your problem. So what is he going to do? Is he going to do exactly what everyone else does when we show weakness, take advantage of it, make fun of us for it, call us a failure, make us feel like a failure? No. No, those problems Jesus can see are exactly why he was born. And he explains this to us, doesn't he? He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, 
the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Of all the symbolic actions of the Old Testament, like ashes and sackcloth, anointing was a big deal. A priest or a prophet would get out a flask of olive oil and dump the thing on someone's head. And everyone was supposed to understand what this meant. This meant a celebration of the person getting that oil all over their head. Celebration of who they are, but also looking forward to what they were going to do. Anointing was selecting someone for a specific task. You can think of King David when the prophet Samuel came, and when it was his time to ascend the throne and become a king, what did Samuel do? He dumped a bunch of olive oil on David's head. He anointed him as king. Jesus says, I am the anointed one. And that word anointed is where we get the word Messiah or Christ. Jesus has been chosen, set apart for what purpose? To bring good news. Now, there are different kinds of good news, though, right? If you come and tell me there's free chicken sandwiches at Chick-fil-A until 3 p.m., that's good news. But if I don't do anything about it, I don't make that good news good for me. That is not really good news if I'm not actually going to go and get a free chicken sandwich. Is that the kind of good news Jesus has come to bring? Something that you need to take advantage of? No. Ask a husband or a wife on their wedding day if it was good news when the pastor or the judge proclaimed, declared them husband and wife. I think they would say yes. Ask the person caught in generational poverty if it was good news when the bank declared that their student loan debt and their credit card debt were completely forgiven. I think that's good news. Jesus brings the good news not of another thing to put on your Christmas checklist, not of another responsibility you have to go take advantage of. Jesus brings you the good news of what has already been done. He declares your debt forgiven, your spiritual debt of righteousness to God. It has been fulfilled already. Jesus declared that your broken heart, your crushed spirit, he has come to mend it. He has come to heal it. He has come to love you. Jesus has responded to your weakness and your sin and your guilt with love and grace and forgiveness. Jesus will not treat you the way the rest of the world treats you. He sees straight into your heart. He knows every one of your problems, and he says, I have come to solve them. He knows your powerlessness before the power of the devil or the power of death itself, and he has come to remove their power over you by conquering them with his cross. Jesus was anointed to solve your greatest problems. But you have to notice what our role is in this lesson. What are you doing, you brokenhearted, you imprisoned, you, you people with all of your problems? What are we doing here? We are just receiving Jesus is doing all of the work of removing the ashes from our head, removing the sackcloth from our bodies, and clothing us in robes of his righteousness and of peace and of love and safety. 
What did Mason do earlier in the service when he came up and, and was baptized? Well, he walked up here, he said a couple things, but are we really going to give you the credit, Mason, for that hard work? I don't think so. God was the one anointing Mason through the water of baptism, setting Mason apart, just like he did for you, brothers and sisters. Our job with Jesus is just to receive. Receive his love, receive his blessing. Be wrapped up in his righteousness. And so we can throw aside our life's life's mission to appear in control, to appear strong, to appear like we all we have it all together. We don't need to do that act anymore. Not with Jesus anyway. With Jesus you are completely free to admit your weakness. You are completely free to admit your guilt. You are completely free to admit that you are in pain and that things are out of your control. Why? Because he's the one who's there to wrap you up in his love. Our lesson concludes this way. The singer of this song changes. It was Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, and now in verses 10 and 11, it's you and me. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up, and as a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. This is your Christmas carol. This is your song for this season. The God who has seen your character, seen your struggles, seen your pain, has responded with love, has responded with salvation. The God who created you and knows you has responded to all that you're going through with his strength. He has made you like an oak, the big, beautiful, strong tree, symbolic of, of strength and stability and foundation. But if you think about it, what does an oak do to grow itself? Nothing. Plants can't move, they can't talk, they can't communicate. They just kind of get planted and then kind of hope for the best. An oak, as strong and beautiful and, and, and impervious as it is, has to rely on good growing conditions in order to get so strong. It has to rely on moisture, on sunlight, and on good soil. Brothers and sisters, you are an oak. And God is the grower. And God will grow you well. He will give you what you need to stand strong and beautiful. God will dress you in the wedding garments, like he says. And when, just like when you go to a wedding and the beauty of the bride and the handsomeness of the groom inspires people and moves people to tears, you are like that. You will inspire people with your, the beauty of your righteousness. Now, how does that work? A Christian will not need to portray portray to the world that you have it all together. You do not need to portray to the world that you are perfect. You don't need to send a message out into the world that's not true about you. Because it's not your righteousness you are trying to show to the world. 
It's Jesus. You don't need to try to convince other people that you have it all together. You're free to admit before others that you are vulnerable, that you are weak, that you are stressed out. You're even free to admit that you sin because it's Christ's righteousness that saves you. It's Christ's forgiveness that defines you in God's sight. So we Christians, we don't need to put on an act of being the most pious people in the world. We're free to just live our relationship with God. And we will be showing God's righteousness to all nations. We will be displaying God's goodness by showing the world that someone as struggling, as weak as I am, God loves me. And he's wrapped me up in his righteousness. And you too. Amen.